Welcome back to Namne podcast to everyone who who listens us and if you don't then I guess why <laughs> um, but uh, you're listening to our international series um, where uh, we support Ukraine and promote awareness about the war and uh, this episode we focus on Russian information warfare and how to combat their uh, disinformation and uh, propaganda and probably there is no better guest for this discussion uh, than uh, Biliana Lili uh, the author of recent uh, uh, book um, Russian Information Warfare, Assault on Democracies in the Cyber Wild West. Uh, Dr. Lily has over 15 years of experience in defense and cybersecurity. Currently, she is the head of uh, geostrategic risk at the Krebs Tamas Group and an adjunct uh, researcher at the REN Corporation. Also, Dr. Lily is a speaker at DEFCON, SICON, uh, Executive Women Forum, uh, Women's Forum, and uh, the Warsaw Security Forum. Uh, she's also famously denounced by the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So, um, Dr. Lily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ruslan. I'm really glad to be here and see you all. Uh, out of everyone, um, or rather, you have pretty um, impressive background, and uh, but for Ukrainian uh, audience, I think no matter how much credentials you would have, uh, the ones that would catch the, the the ear would still be the fact that you're denounced by the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I guess we cannot not ask this question, uh, and uh, basically just wanted to figure out how that happened. Yeah, so it's. It's a great question. Um, I've provoked the, a response from the Russian government several times with a lot of the things that I've been doing. And it's usually been out of my own curiosity. And I uh, end up for research purposes in very interesting places. And uh, once I was um, I was shoved by Yulia Shoigu, who is the daughter of the defense minister of Russia. This happened on another on another occasion, I was asked for my credential by a deputy defense minister of Russia. So I've had some experiences. Um, on another occasion, there was a Russian soldier running after me trying to, to confiscate my camera. So <laughs> I've had a few of those moments. Particularly that denouncement was because I co-authored a paper with a um, really intelligent um, intelligent researcher called Joe Cheravich, and hopefully at some point you'll have him on the show too, because Joe also writes about information warfare. And right now he's deeply bur buried in his dissertation, and it's going to be awesome because it's examining an aspect of that. And we wrote a paper about Russian cyber operations and how we can erode Russia's capacity to conduct cyber operations. And we published it and we talked about it. And a few days later, I got a note from a NATO friend who asked me to check Twitter. And we saw on Twitter that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has basically criticized our paper, said that it was not based on any facts. And there was even a of meme course. of a bear, um, I think, hacking on a computer at a kitchen with a ball of fruit next to it. It was really weird, but it was literally attached as a meme to our, to our paper. And it was a quote from uh, Maria Zakharova that was, that was um, basically she, she denounced us. She said, this is, this is fake. Fake news. The of papers. course, yeah. Yeah, not it's accurate and all news. that. <clears throat> exactly. So I thanked her very respectfully, and that was it. And I still have to print this and put it somewhere. But this is one of those um, publicly known uh, Absolutely. moments. Absolutely, you could probably also come it. up with some merch. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, probably. 
you're now leading uh, unit uh, response unit for geostrategic and business risk intelligence. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, your job duties there? And um, does it focus on Ukraine or what is in the field of focus of it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we're still growing. I'm working with a great team and uh, we're looking at whenever there's a company that's international, that has either an international brand, branch or, or an office somewhere outside of the United States, or it has assets that could be interested, interesting to nation state threat actors. We look at the company and we say, okay, what are the cyber regulatory and geopolitical risks that are associated with your business? And how do you have to shape your strategy in the most effective way so that you minimize and mitigate the risks from these particular areas? So this is kind of the general description that I can give. And we work with a lot of companies and Russia and Ukraine especially is a huge focus right now. We also produce a bi-weekly analytical digest. We call it a newsletter and we send it to all of our clients and it covers the current geopolitical landscape and cyber uh, regulatory landscape. And whenever there's an issue, we send alerts as well and they cover China, Ukraine and other areas that are of potential concern for clients. So yes, I'm the Russia watcher and Ukraine watcher and that's why I don't sleep a lot these days. I don't think any of us that's paying attention to the conflict is sleeping a lot these days because every day there's something new and every day there's a there's a trend that we're looking at and it's almost like a like a matchbox and you're waiting for it to like light up again. And it's it's um yeah, it's like, yep. Please stand by as we try to make yeah. this world a safer place. Yeah. So in your book you touch a lot a lot of details on uh Russian cyber war in uh uh Russian cyber war. Um, and um, in general, uh, do you think um, do you think that Russian information informational uh, operation cases in general were they successful? Because we hear a lot about that throughout the years, 2016 and so on. Um, but it's not really clear about impact and what were their goals? Like did they reach their goals or not? Such a great question, isn't it? We always talk about the Russians being 10 feet tall and, oh my God, they're coming and they're in our networks and we have to defend the elections and let's pour millions of dollars into that. But it's an awesome question and I've tried to answer it from multiple angles. So for 2016, no one can still tell me for sure, did the Russians decide the elections? There are a lot of pundits that will argue either way, but you need to have a methodologically rigorous study that looks at how are certain pieces of disinformation or strategic messaging that were released from the DNC hack in 2016, how did they affect voters' preferences and voters' willingness to vote and then eventually the decision to go and vote? So there are so many like in-betweens. Let's say I hear a piece of information about Hillary Clinton or another candidate that's basically compromising her in my eyes. Would this make me go and change my mind or would this make me just more irritated towards that candidate, but I'll still vote for her because I'm a Democrat? So. There are a lot of those intricacies that if I'm a methodologist and I, I did that sort of research um, back at RAND, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust just statements. This is way too important to be delegated to statements and hypotheses. So we need a good study and there are methods to do this with like randomized control trial, for example, and so on. And we can get geeky on those details. But basically the point is, I don't think anyone has done it so far to tell us. And when I look at effectiveness of information warfare operations, I look at what did the Russian government try to achieve? Let's start from there. And let's say in 2016, with the cyber operations, they tried a hack and leak. 
was that successful when they had the, the Democratic National Committee? Yes. They got into the networks, they bridged them, they successfully exfiltrated information, they released it through Guccifer 2.0, WikiLeaks, and DCLeaks. So that particular part of the information warfare campaign was successful. Then, did they decide the outcome of the elections? Unclear. Now I can really tell you. But let's say, did they manage to rattle the Democratic campaign? Yes. The chairman of the of the DNC, um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I believe was her name, she resigned because of the DNC hack. A chairman of the entire DNC resigned because of that. So for me, this is a big success. And also the fact that we kept on talking about the Russians so much as the elections were, were taking place. And afterwards, we kept on hearing about the troll and bots, um, and we kept on hearing about rallies that they're sponsoring, and we kept on analyzing their behavior. For Putin, this is like success. I'm in the news. The, the, the Americans care about me. The American media covers me. Like, I am, I am a great power. So I think that was probably from the perspective of the Russians a huge success. But in other cases, let's see one of the very first ones that's very kind of a little clearer because we have more data on it. Let's say the DDoS attacks against okay. Estonia in 2007. Remember, Estonia could you, wanted could to you, move on. Could you maybe please uh, stay stay with the DNC hack for a little bit longer? Absolutely. Because I, I wanted to ask you a specific question. Look, uh, I, I think that uh, the inability to decisively assess the effect on the elections outcome is uh, is due to do to uh, two factors. So first of all, American democracy is very complicated. Right. And the uh, Ukrainian one is election system. I mean, is much more simple. We can decisively and uh, absolutely concretely state that Russians affected our elections once or twice. Right. Maybe not in cyber, but information I mean, in, in the information field, certainly. Uh, and the second one is that uh, as many analysts state, maybe we should take their advice and uh, assess Russian success by the measurement they make, right? So I, I don't think that they wanted to, to decisively affect the uh, uh, democratic processes. They wanted to distort them and use this distortion to discredit them globally, to uh, just shake this inevitability of uh, liberalism and democracy as the end of history and say that, you know, our way to govern has perspective too because look what's what what good democracy did them you know no, no, you you're absolutely that right. yeah maybe because, i'm confused no no that's an excellent point when we look at when we analyze the disinformation the disinformation narratives that they were spreading they weren't and mm -hmm. and the way they were stationing rallies they weren't just just supporting one candidate they were supporting at different times both candidates, both the Republican and the Democrat. And and also, mm -hmm. so there are some narratives that say, it's all hypothesis, right? We haven't looked at Putin's notebook to say, okay, under elections 2016, ah, okay, these were his objectives, there are ticks, there were achieved. Like, we don't have that that notebook to say what exactly was in his head. Or at least but not given, yet. 
Good point. <laughs> Good point, Ruslan. Send well, but, me a copy but, when you get it, okay? But please. Any, anyway, <laughs> even if you don't see the plans, it's very in line with their general strategy of reflexive yeah, control, yeah, yeah. polarize Absolutely. and distort, right? Yep, reflexive control was during the Cold War, but right now in the information warfare concept, in the definition, if you guys ask me, I'm going to tell you about it because I've opened it here because it's important. In 2011, one of the points of why they do information warfare is to coerce the state into behaving the way they want, and it's exactly reflexive control in there. So, so exactly. it's it's like, it's it's indoctrinated, it's like doctrinal in, in the strategy. Yep, yep. It's written. 2011, yep, document, I can nice. send you a link. <laughs> I didn't so, know yeah. <laughs> See, for those of us who like actually sit for the documents, yeah, it's right there. But yeah. you're absolutely right. And they were stationing rallies to support Hillary Clinton and to support Donald Trump even after the election, which is a huge point. And thank you for bringing it up because people think, okay, they wanted to affect the elections and they moved on. No, the disinformation volume and the number of like um, the, the rallies that they stationed that were trying to polarize the, the population still continued after the election was after the election took place so my assessment of that is it's in line with their doctrine of information warfare which says we want to disturb like basically to erode the democratic process the decision making process in your country we want to erode your trust in your governance so you're absolutely right and it's codified and the data shows it nice so yeah i think you're right and from from what we see it looks like they're um Cyber operations are usually in line with informational uh, operations, right? It's it's the same thing for them, or usually like one is a part of another. Um, is, is that the case? Is that what you see as well from your studies? And uh, which um, which out of those two you think they are better at? Also, that's a great question. So, in some cases, I did see that there's some there's some patterns and some um, integration between the two. In other cases, it was mm -hmm. harder to see, but it may also be because I didn't look where I was supposed to because of the data collection method that I used, because of the media that I decided to, to look for disinformation in. So I think that in general, they try to use them in coordination or at least try to use them in a way that amplifies the, uh, the, achievement, uh, the achievement of their actual objective. Like in the DNC hack in 2016, what happened? They took the information out of the DNC they tried first for Gucifer 2.0, it didn't pick up. They tried for DC leaks. A lot of media didn't pick it up. And then finally they started releasing it for WikiLeaks. And then, then finally like media started paying attention. People started paying attention. And then they took that, that, that information from the DC, the, uh, the DNC leaks, and they integrated it with state sponsored strategic messaging through um, mm -hmm. RT and Sputnik. So it became a part of their other disinformation and strategic messaging there was even like in the book i look at the portion that's dedicated that was a part of the strategic messaging that talked about the dnc versus everything else that they talked about with, in relation to the election so it became a part of their general disinformation slash strategic messaging campaign in other cases like in estonia in 2007 they initiated if you remember four waves of ddos attacks against estonia because of the mm -hmm. Trump soldier and when i looked at all the volume of media that was targeted, that was uh, available to the Ukrainians and was state-sponsored from the Russians, you see there were four beautiful spikes in media coverage in the volume of media that was negative towards Ukraine just before each of the DDoS attacks. So it's like five, four, four beautiful spikes just before each of the, the DDoS attacks. 
So to me, this suggests there is some sort of coordination between, okay, we, we get angry, we express our indignation towards the particular state and what they're doing. We try maybe to even rally the hackers to help us with the DDoS attacks, and then we initiate the DDoS attack. And again, less SSS information, disinformation, strategic messaging, and again, spike in a DDoS, spike in a DDoS. So this was this was a pattern that I saw, and I wonder if if we look at some of the volume of messaging in Ukraine through maybe Telegram or Twitter or anything else, or any other states at this point, probably will be Telegram or Twitter, and we try to map that with certain cyber operations if we're going to see a pattern. So do you see this like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> All three together. <laughs> Alex, please go ahead. Yeah, I, I just like was thinking aloud, right? Like whether you looked deeper, are those only spikes or did you see like, you know, change of narrative or, you know, like um, they're trying different strategies with these like media spikes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I actually read those articles. There are hundreds of articles around this time all about the bronze soldier. And when they start, when the spikes happened, it was the number of articles that they would publish about how if you remember, the Russian government said the bronze soldier was taken to pieces. It was actually damaged during the transportation process. So they threw, this was the piece of disinformation that was in the narrative, and they would emphasize that before the DDoS attacks. And they will claim again, uh, the Ukrainians are desecrating our history, they're disrespecting us. So it's the negative, it's always negative rhetoric towards Ukraine, not Ukraine, I apologize, Estonia that spiked in those cases. So it's the Good. negative rhetoric volume increase just before the attacks. Alex, if you're done, I wanted to ask a, an expert on a specific question and finally we got uh, a specific expert on. So uh, do, more in general, do, what do you think is the reason Russia treats uh, information confrontation or whatever translation for Informazione Partostania is? Right? Why do they? Why do they um, uh, institutionalize it on the doctrinal level as a spectrum of of a coherent domain and not put it uh, differently as uh, as the Westerners do? Uh, because it it always was quite maybe I might be I'm a follower of Western school of thought in cyber so that's why it's surprising me maybe the other way around is more natural as a as a natural evolution of intangible warfare right so first some some radio then some uh, SIGINT and then some uh, information distortion on the broader scale just medium changes and everything else remains uh, pretty much uh, the same. What do, what do you think is, is the reason they evolutionized until now uh, in this form, not the other way around? Yeah, it's a great question, Vlad. I think it's cultural and historic, and I think they have seen the effectiveness of that integration of the two during the Cold War and now. And also, if you look at their units, mm-hmm. the military units that are conducting this sort of Warfare and it's informazione protivaborstvo, informazione vaina, informazione barba. There are several terms, and I usually go with either information mm-hmm. war, information warfare for for the rough translation. And in different documents, they call it mm-hmm. slightly differently. So I would say, if you look at the GRU, they also have a history of using propaganda and psyops, and now they're really integrating them nicely with um, operations in cyberspace. So they have the know-how of how to do it, and they're building on it, and they saw. They're seeing that it's effective. 
And I think from a bureaucratic, historical, mm -hmm. institutional, and cultural perspective, they see a lot of value in this. I still remember I grew up in Bulgaria and I still, um, I remember we had so many pamphlets from the communist period and my grandparents, they, they're still very like, they love Russia. My father is still very pro-Russian. I, I uh, started working for NATO and he, I, I'll come home and he'll tell me that everything evil comes from the West and just my father. And he grew up in the communist system and he believes that mother Russia liberated us. And that's why, um, they're, they basically they're, they own our lives. And this was all propaganda during that period. He also believes that COVID didn't happen. So you see the, the pernicious effects of following a narrative or looking at state-sponsored media. What didn't happen? Um, the COVID, you know, there are certain individuals that happen? believe. Yes, that COVID was um, was designed by, by a malicious government. I'm not sure at this point which one is, is the one that we're blaming. Nice. It depends yeah, on who it is. Exactly. Did you see this service from Germany where there is a direct correlation between people who believed in the COVID conspiracy a couple of years ago and who believed that Ukraine should go and shoot, shoot itself in, in the head and uh, comply to whatever, concede to whatever I wouldn't Russians be surprised. are? I wouldn't be surprised because it's very similar channels that are spreading those narratives. I would love to see that study if you can send me the link. That's exactly I what have... I wanted to hear because I wanted to, to just confirm that they repurposed the troll farms they used. Yep. In <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really? Yep. I, wow. I wouldn't be, yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing that as well. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so send me the link. We'll, well, yeah, we'll exchange some information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. I will. Because it, it's so clear to me. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of channels and it's really interesting to see across different countries how Russian state-sponsored media coordinate sometimes their messages and they're learning from each other. Especially in Eastern Europe, you have, you have some in Montenegro, in Bulgaria, in Serbia, and you can see how there are certain um, experts that are also tracking this to see how to recognize the different, um, the different elements in our media space that work for the Russian government or somehow related to the Russian government. And you can see how in parallel they start posting messages. So yes, these are very likely scenarios. Interesting. And this is, a, uh, I guess, a good point to, to ask because your book was written before the full-scale invasion uh, uh, of Russia. And uh, uh, basically, I guess the operation was a little bit different before that. Uh, did, okay. they, uh, did, they, um, did you observe if they changed any tactics since uh, the invasion? I mean, Ruslan, like, we, it's a, it's a war, right? They're they're doing a lot, and there's a lot to monitor. But I see, I, I think from at least the way I have structured the models that I'm using or the frameworks that I'm using in my book, they can still cap capture the changes that we have seen. Like, in one of the frameworks, I'm looking at mapping just the cyber operations during an information warfare operation, so we can my, map to those ransomware, wiper malware, DDoS attacks, anything that comes. But um, yeah, we've seen in Ukraine, we've seen um, a lot of active use of cyber operations. Viktor Zora recently said that it was about more than 1,600 significant cyber instances or cyber operations since the start of the war, and they're constant. So there is a lot to map and see. We've seen a lot of new versions of malware. We've seen in Destroyer 2. So all of them are new. There are some interesting examples of how disinformation and cyber operations are also linked. So I would say all of this is... Um, giving us a lot more of an idea of um, Russia's capacity and how they conduct war and how they use information warfare 
during an actual war together with kinetic um with uh, with kinetic force military right force would you say it's more of the same uh or there are some do they like... innovate yeah yeah I have a, because I have certainly we have enjoyed a very interesting yeah. cycle of counter innovation because it just so happened that the ukrainian president's administration is a bunch of uh, pr wizards <laughs> that's basically how they came to power right so yeah these people know their audience and these people like they love and they know how to communicate so do russians yeah. continue this cycle of counter innovation or or do they just do as ruslan said more of the same so can we say that like hacking into facebook accounts and then pretending to be a leader and spreading disinformation about zelensky's innovation i would say like they have done some some of the activities that they have done some of the operations i haven't seen before but they're Mm-hmm. They continue to look for vulnerabilities and exploit whatever they can find. So in this way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say they're innovative. I would say they oh, continue this, to this scam. stuff will never change. This is what we call hacking, right? Yeah, Just... exactly. Can you say that a new like disinformation narrative is innovation? Like. Now we have bio labs no. all over Ukraine and all of that stuff. Like it's, it's just another, it's, is the same malicious intent in a different context or in a different mm-hmm. wrapping. So to me, it's not as much innovation as it is just trying to find another another vulnerability and another scandalous, fictitious narrative to spread that people will somehow believe. In the mm-hmm. beginning, we've seen... Sorry, did no, you no. have something? No, okay. just... In, just... The, in the beginning, we had... Uh, so we observed some kind of synchronization between their... Uh, cyber attacks and uh, kinetic attacks mm-hmm. though later it seems like it kind of uh, whether they stop doing that or or they can do it like it doesn't seem to be you know uh, as coherent. as coordinated as yeah as, uh, and as coherent exactly uh because like pre-war everyone was like you know oh my gosh like whenever russia goes full fully and it's like ev- total blackout and everything disappears. I don't know, every, every, everything is hacked and all the implants are activated. In reality, it wasn't like that. There were some successful attacks uh, at the right time and then kind of just chaos. So do you think it's uh, intentional or, or, or initially the synchronized attacks were just also a coincidence and they didn't have yeah. any like big plan for it? Or, or like maybe question. they are doing more intelligence operations in order to like fuel their information ops and uh, th- this is why we do not see any effects and it makes us feel that russian cyber is not existing so there's i think a little bit of that another is if we look at how the war evolved in general at some point they started losing commanders a lot right and they started scrambling for manpower mm-hmm. and logistics they were so logistically challenged and challenged in the conventional military warfare domains that this might have it'll be interesting Mm -hmm. to see at at which point they started to lose synchronization between different military operations and the cyber operations and see if this correlates with chronologically if this correlates with when they started to become more chaotic in their war because cyber is just one domain of warfare so is it did the same chaotic approach start happening when they started to scramble for for soldiers and their strategy started mm. failing because they had to yeah first they thought we we're gonna at least from what i'm understanding we're gonna take over kiev 
yeah, that didn't work. So let's withdraw. Let's go back to Donetsk now. So I wonder if they had to redesign the way they conduct cyber operations as they had to to, to change effectively the narrative on mm-hmm. what the strategy is in Ukraine. So that'll be an interesting but question to answer. M- might that be that they just lost personnel who was capable to synchronize between domains? Yeah, that's like what I'm uh, people serving GRU, Hustly, uh, leaving the country and uh, people synchronizing with them on the ground in the field, simply being killed by HIMARS. Might that One be? option, right? But just my wish. Like we're hypothesizing, right? Yep, I can understand your wishful thinking and I fully support it. Um, totally, It's totally an option, right? I haven't seen the data. I need to look into this more and think about it. And it's probably going to take us a few years after the war is over for us to be able to collect the data correlated and have a clear answer. But I think that's a really clear, clear a good hypothesis. And also, just look at what's happening over the past two weeks. We had Prigozhin, this video of Prigozhin recruiting in Russian prisons. I don't know if you saw it, guys. Prigozhin is the, for anyone who doesn't know, the, the head of Everyone the Wagner group. The, yeah, they know him, right? The chef, the guy who cooks of for course. the Wagner <laughs> mercenaries. <laughs> anyway, so he was in the prison recruiting, right? So why would a guy at his caliber go into a prison and recruit? Isn't that a little bit like a waste of his time. So to me, this shows desperation. And then we had all of us who were waiting two nights ago to hear Putin speak. And we're like, oh my God, what will he say? And he comes on stage and says partial mobilization, which pretty much is full mobilization. And then Shoigu says 300,000 men and maybe even uh, capable women, because also women can fall under that category, will be um, drafted. And then people started fleeing en masse and we're looking at protests and over 1,000 people have been detained in one day because they don't want to go and uh, fight the war. So I think the Russians are having a very serious manpower problem at the moment. And this may affect so many other things. They have logistical issues, yeah. supply issues, and so on. So this is probably also affecting cyberspace and their ability to conduct operations in cyberspace. On this note, have you noticed, um, I think during this time when everyone was anticipating the, the speech, uh, right, one of the things that uh, kind of caught my eye, I think there's shared... Who was? Really? Come on, guys. Was <laughs> well, anyone anticipating? No, no. The... I was. Okay. I was wondering what we, he's going to say. Point. I, I really was, honestly. Yeah, exactly. That night. <laughs> oh, exactly. The, the, we didn't anticipate to be impressed. We were just anticipating what happens next. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh. You know, Swan, he has one leg. Just, yeah, sorry, exactly. sorry, <laughs> sorry, 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 I interrupted. Uh, but just good getting back to Prigozhin. Can we spend a little a little more time on him? So I, I saw this video and some other one, and uh, it uh, uh, it struck me uh, that he is um, not acting as, uh, as uh, Putin's chef. He is not uh, recruiting to go to war for Putin. He is recruiting to go to war for Russia, right? So basically, mm-hmm. acting as a, as a person, as, as an agent, and is a political agent uh, of himself, right? That maybe again, just my wishful thinking and another sign of distortion of political elites in Russia at the moment, but. Could it be but that? Not, as an independent warlord, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. 
because uh, Russia after Putin doesn't have any uh, any integrated way to uh, transfer power legitimately simply because they have destroyed their democracy there is no yeah that's not part of their plan do that right uh, no. so basically Putin doesn't plan to die and he doesn't care what happens next right and uh, that would be very interesting Kadyrovci against Wagner against Silviki against uh, FSB against uh, the army yeah, it's interesting how Kadyrov also pops up from time to time in comments, right? Yeah, that is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't dare speculate on who's going to be next, honestly. I've been asked this many times and I, I'm thinking, sure, FSB, someone from the inner circle, Medvedev resurrected, like, there are so many options, but the there's so much we don't know that I don't dare speculate because I really don't have a clear answer given the factors that and the, the information that we know. But that's, that's a very interesting point. Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be but, said but about. But that's the greatest answer we could get, Bilana. There is Which no one? That certain it's a mess? candidate. It's, yeah. No, no, no. It's yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, you're right. Which is scary, isn't it? It's scary because we. Need, it is. To a certain extent, it's good to know who's in power because we have studied his mindset for 20 years. Like, sure, we still don't know a lot about the guy, but we know about his history, the way he thinks. We've seen him act when he's challenged. We see how he responds to missile defense, Eastern expansion of NATO, different different people in office in, in the U.S. Like, we can, to, to, a certain, to a certain extent, we can predict his behavior. Mm-hmm. While with a new guy, then we have to do all of this again. So there's there's something to be said about the certainty of having a villain in charge that you're you're familiar with as much as you can be. Um, but on the on Prigozhin and his behavior, I would say it's um I would link that to so the narratives that they have right now and why they're going into in Ukraine. And recently, if you I don't know if you if you picked up on that, there was a new humanitarian policy doctrine or Russia's humanitarian policy abroad doctrine, which was a really interesting document, about 30 pages. Putin signed it two or three weeks ago. And to me, it relates to information warfare. I don't think in the document they mention information warfare, but it relates to it because they say we will protect ethnic ethnic Russians abroad and it's our mm-hmm. right to do that and we'll do that because they are part of a part of our cultural heritage and so on. So it's almost like a roadmap for, okay, these are the countries we can invade next if they mess with our ethnic population or mess in a way that we say that they, they mess, if they threaten our, our ethnic Russians abroad. So I think the narrative right now is that Mother Russia is defending its, its um, the diasporas abroad, its people abroad. So this may be one of the reasons why he's recruiting in this way, because in their patriotic education also that they have been building and investing in institutionally for years, that's a whole other talk we can have about youth movements and paramilitary groups and so on they tend to go with that idea of patriotism of we were great during the cold war we were great we liberated europe from from nazi germany and this is the narrative that they're trying to 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 rally people behind but, but so but, that could be but just that's another so reason. that that's so stupid historically because they're basically follow the 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 manual written by nazis yeah you're not going to face that, opposition from did. me on that. Yeah, it's, I know. I, guess I know the, it's absurd. Average. Average Russian just doesn't say know that history. Every citizen probably doesn't look into that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. maybe. 
basically the observation I, w I wanted to mention was that supposedly, because there is no way for me to verify 100%, but uh, during this time that we are anticipating uh, Putin's speech, um, Russian Air Force is supposed to be like the command center in case of nuclear exchange was in there. And similarly, British uh, uh, Royal Force, it's kind of similarly designed. Basically, they were both in, in the air. And then after a while, when like everyone realized like, okay, the speech is canceled, uh, one goes, uh, one lands, and then the, the British one lands. Do you think this also could be just part of a kind of informational just influence or whatever, or like to keep everyone like scared or whatnot? Yeah, probably. Oh, I, I, uh... I have a very, I have a very uh, trivial explanation for that because uh, what the army, like military analysts in the West, are articulating about what's actually been happening for all this time, like these twelve hours or something, that he had three options and he had to choose. One option was to withdraw. One option was to escalate uh, unconventionally, uh, and uh, the third option was partial or general mobilization. So he have chosen the third one, but the options were prepared. Cold War vibes. Yeah. Um, so in future yeah. after, yeah, sorry, you, you had something on this note. Yeah, we do have questions from audience to question. Uh, yeah, whenever there is a pause or Ruslan, if you want to resume the topic. Uh, no, actually, let's let's go with the questions and then we'll switch just to another. Yeah, so I think like it's one is you know slightly related to what we discussed. So uh, Roman is asking, have you observed other countries um, adopting Russian information warfare, and how far is China into it, uh, especially in the well, information part? A little bit. Yes. Do you guys want me to answer? Or did you did you want to go in? Glad you. So no, I no, no, no. Please, please go in. So I've looked into that. I'm not an expert on, on uh, Chinese foreign policy. I don't speak Mandarin. That's the next language I, I want to learn, actually. But uh, they have a doctrine of free warfare, I think, and cognitive warfare is a part of that free warfare doctrine. I think it was like legal, cognitive, and something else. So they're building a doctrine that looks similar to the Russian one. But from what I have seen, and there were some really good studies published about a year or two ago by an Australian think tank that looked at where the Chinese government is using cyber operations and um, activities similar to what the Russians um, are doing that I call that we call information warfare. And it was really interesting to see the geographic div um, divide. Like the Russians are targeting more Europe and the United States, while the Chinese are targeting countries that that are more strategically important to them in Asia, like Taiwan, Hong Kong, and so on. So that's where they're conducting those operations. So they're definitely learning. I think they're learning from each other. There was a, a really good student at RAND who wanted to to actually cover this, and I was excited. I thought I, I, I was really hoping he'll go in that direction, and I'll work with him on his dissertation, but he decided to pick a different route. But uh, that's still a topic that I hope someone picks up because it's a challenging topic, and I would love to know who is learning from who and how because I think there is some learning happening and you have the Chinese and also recently, and this was also before the, the previous elections in the US, we have our IC or the intelligence community say to beware of the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians that they may try to, to conduct information operations is what US calls it against the elections. But to me, it's, it's a little bit myopic because yes, they're challenging the elections, but by definition, doctrine stipulates that they are using just the vulnerabilities and the opportunity to divide us and erode our belief in democracy around the elections, but then the particular information operation can continue. So don't think of it as episodic. Okay, they're going to attack us because of the elections. 
they will attack us because of the elections and they will continue to try to divide us afterwards and use the grievances that already exist around the election process to um to erode our democratic processes further so i would say those three probably are top of my list and you have domestic issues in different countries as well so i would say in a way dictator or authoritarian regimes have definitely learned from russia's playbook and are applying this domestically too is there another one alex uh, yeah, so the second question is, uh, you know, about awareness. Uh, so how the awareness of being informationally attacked has changed in the Western society, both US and Europe for different social classes? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I have partial information from the the, the, um, the people that I socialize with and in the studies that I read about this. So I think we're more aware of what the Russian government can be doing and what the different elements of information warfare are. But I'm but this is among scholars, the media, the, the stakeholders that are involved. When it comes to the general population, the fact that we still have narratives that pick up and people believe them, like disinformation, like for example, flat earthers, like who believes in this? Why would you even think that this is a thing? Why would you get to the point where you have conferences in Texas for flat earthers that believe that the earth is flat? Like, what kind of thinking do you have to have to believe that that's true? So for me, <laughs> the biggest problem is how do we educate our population to be skeptical consumers of information and recognize fake narratives versus real narratives? Or people that believe that COVID didn't happen and that the government just kept us at home because they wanted to ruin the economy. Those are ridiculous narratives that I've heard from my Russian friends here in Santa Monica. I am in California. So those for, for me are, we have to educate our population to be smarter. And this is, I, I think, a problem in different countries. Um, I would say countries that have done it well, and I cover this in my book and I'm fascinated by this case, guys. I don't know if you're paying attention, but Norway. Do you know that in Norway, the Russians tried to create, they created for a few months Sputnik Norg. I'm not sure how we pronounce it, but N-O-R-G-E is the spelling. Basically, a Norwegian version of Sputnik, their propaganda machine, and it crashed and burned. It didn't pick up. They had it for a few months and the Norwegians just weren't reading it. So they just closed it down. So why are the Norwegians smarter than us in recognizing what's what's reputable news source and what isn't? Like... That's what I, I want to understand. I think that's the type of shield we need to build and resilience we have to build. I know that's not the best uh, uh, way to uh, prove a point, but from my personal experience, maybe you just need to live long enough to come to several conclusions that something that you truly believed in is incorrect. And then it starts happening too often. You are trying to investigate what is the reason for that happening, right? And it seems to me, I, I, I'm not sure that it's correct in all the cases, but it seems to me that very often uh, I concluded that it's at some point in my personal history, someone I trusted told me so, and I didn't verify, right? And this knowledge was with me for a very long time, like, I don't know, for 30 years. And then suddenly I meet another person and I uh, communicate, we have a conversation and uh, then they just convince me and prove that I am I was wrong for, for all this time. Uh, so maybe the correct solution, I, I, I do not believe in, in, in a practical way to uh, 
to give someone a vaccine for for critical thinking and just magically make them skeptical about uh, disinformation. But I think that maybe we should focus on a narrower uh, narrow, narrower uh, population of uh, opinion dealers and thought leaders and all these people who are followed online or otherwise and just make up some rules for them and uh, that would suffice. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah, studies have, yeah, exactly. Um, influence Does it influencers scale in like a way. That? Yeah, yeah, because people follow, we follow influencers, right? We follow leaders, we we read certain sources. And exactly, if you look at the people that believe in certain disinformation narratives, like let's say certain di- diasporas, they, they watch the same media channels. They go to the same social media groups. There are eco chambers mm-hmm. that are created. So you're absolutely right that there are certain groups that we can target more than others. And the, the, the idea about the persuasion, it's a great idea. I don't know how effective it would be. There are so many biases about you believing a piece of information when you hear it first. Like it sticks with you more than if you if you first hear the, 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 the truth and then someone tells you the, the fake news. So that's, there's this advantage of hearing something first. There's the information mm-hmm. if you like you're barraged with a volume of information from different sources that you trust and those sources that you trust send you this fake information, you will believe it because you believe the sources. Like there's research behind that stuff. So it's complicated. I'm not sure one conversation will solve it or how many conversations you have to have with a person that believes a particular fake narrative to get them to the point to realize that it's fake. Um, but that's the point of, cha- of, of targeting the influencers is a great one. And it's being proven that that's one of the ways to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, like from my observation, uh, it's unfortunately it's not necessarily the smartness because the people uh, the person can be smart by every <laughs> no objective uh, objective yeah, measure and I have degrees yes. and whatnot and still yeah. and still possess like very deeply flawed arguments. Yes, the number of times I have sat next to really influential people in huge homes um, here with with ocean views telling me that COVID is not real. It's it's. It's scary. Yeah, so like it, it would be simpler if it was just the, the matter of education, like just just get everyone quality education and the problem is solved. Or, but I'm, or, I'm not sure. Or you it could be. be, or you could be a taxi driver in Kiev for the same effect. Like, <laughs> yes, sure. exactly. The most popular to... conversation I have with that with that. <laughs> oh my! I've had a lot of interesting conversations with taxi drivers in Russia, and some of them are smart. So I, I have had both. <laughs> Both extremes, yep. to be honest, on that front. Yeah, you're right. But, so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but Ruslan, that's what I wanted to say. Like, what is high quality education? To me, it's teach critical thinking. Like, let people write essays, ask them to speak up during classes. I don't know how you guys grew up, but in Bulgaria, because our system was still communist when I was studying, until the end of high school, until I went abroad, we had no political education, no civil or civic education studies that Americans have where they talk about what is democracy, why democracy is valuable, how do you compare that with communism? Like, I was taught to memorize facts and report facts back. I wasn't taught to think. And only when I went to Germany for the first time in my bachelor's, and I failed a class in political science because my basically I wrote a paper about why communism is good, and my professor asked me to go into his room in his office, and we talked for two hours, and he convinced me that democracy is better. And then I worked for him for three years. So I became an expert on 
on actually measurements of democracy. <laughs> well, well, see, so that's exactly what Vlad was talking about, right? You were proven, you were proven wrong essentially, and got yeah. You know, but what like, was that? If you were not to, if you were not uh, taught to think critically, if you didn't have the methodology basis for that, on on what grounds did he convince you? What what is it? Is it maybe genetics? <laughs> <laughs> No, really. We started it's... no, but what have we learned? That communism was stable. Everyone is receiving the same salary. You don't have, uh, you don't have homeless in the streets. You don't have crime because everyone is taken care of. But everyone also is equally treated. This is how Bulgarians understood the value of communism: stability. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote about that. And I think my case study was on Ecuador and or another country. And then he started telling me, okay, how about when you want to express your opinion? What happens if you're in a communist state? How about if you actually are smarter and you want to earn more? So we went through actually logical steps. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Maybe I don't want to live in a communalka with 10 other people in the same apartment. <laughs> and maybe, you know, I do want to have a nicer house and drive a Lamborghini one day. Like, why should that be only the politician that runs my country? So those are the the types of questions that he asked me and it took about two hours and then he asked me if I wanted to work with him for him and I said yes so for three years that was that was my my job Matthias Bogarts you can google him I think he's still a professor at um, Jakobs University in Germany good guy That's you don't even need to ask provocative story. questions yeah in, in communistic uh, my great-grandfather actually went to uh, to prison for uh, uh, promoting uh, for um, accessible education they were going to do a like paid education because universities didn't have enough funding and that's what he got in prison for so uh -huh. you don't even need to say something against the party directly to uh, just as long as they see you as a potential threat to their ideology it, it's all all done uh, yeah. but basically your your unit has um geostrategic uh, in its name so that suggests that it uh kind of thinks uh long term and um so in the future, after after Ukrainian victory, how do you think Russian information warfare will will change, and how will it look like? Great question. What it's, I like the statement the way it was put. Um, I think. Uh, me too. <laughs> I expect <laughs> there, I, I expect there be no more Russian disinformation. <laughs> from oh, speaking. I, uh, I think the machine is there, and I think so. If we look at so. The, the way the Russians have been using information warfare. So they start in 2007, we have the Estonia case. And then a lot of mm -hmm. the cases happened after 2014. And what happened in 2014, the annexation of Crimea happened. And then now we have a whole war with the West very clearly supporting Ukraine with sanctions, with just unprecedented unity among NATO member states for Ukraine. So. I think now we're really we've really gotten on Russia's bad side. And I don't see a lot of reasons for them to not use all of the tools that are available to them to demonstrate mm -hmm. that our democratic process is inferior to them and is not working and is basically um, what they're trying to achieve for disinformation to, to discredit us. So at this point, I think information warfare will probably see a lot of it towards the West because I just don't see a reason for the Russians to hold back anymore, especially if they want to exact revenge after right. Ukraine. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking, this is just my hypothesis, but the way I see it, it's if it's a, it's a method for them to, 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 to create, to, to, 
to win in the information space, to actually exact a victory, to, to exact revenge, to get a win out of us, I would say that probably it's going to get worse and we'll see more attacks. But I think there's a lot to be said about capacity and limitation. And right now, I think the Russians have their different priorities, which are stabilize internally the country, make sure we don't collapse because of the mobilization, get our guys back, close the airports. I don't know if you guys followed, but yesterday, basically the Russians said, like, men can't can't see the country. you got to go fight. So I think internally they have to stabilize. They have to create some sort of a per- perceived win in Ukraine or decide to withdraw, which I don't think, um, I doubt Putin is going to withdraw. I think it's going to, oh, to be bloody for a while. Yeah. Afghanistan yeah, so, is, is too fresh in his memory. Oh, you think? That's a good parallel, actually, to draw. Okay, so look. You were putting it in, in a very uh, coherent uh, formula. So what do you think maybe? Oh, no. <laughs> I will not ask that. <laughs> Sorry. So, Ruslan, <laughs> please go ahead. It's okay. okay. So, no, it's uh, too dark. <laughs> okay. Uh, one we, are fami- we are we are family friendly. We are family friendly. Um, one of the conclusions you draw in the book is that uh, proximity to Russia matters when it comes to influence or, or rather like being targeted by cyber by their cyber operations, uh, and that the operations are more aggressive uh, near the border, for example, like targeting ex- Estonia. Um, what do you think are the reasons? Because you would think that cyber is something that where proximity shouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it's because that's a great point, right? Because it doesn't respect borders and you can hack a target rich environment, something in the United States, you don't have to just hack Estonia next door, right? Um, I would say it seems to me that cyber operations are an extension of foreign policy for Russia. It's culturally and historically for them acceptable to be more aggressive in the Eastern Bloc or the, basically the communist states because they had more influence over them historically. So this is the argument or at least the hypothesis that I'm drawing because they're more aggressive in cyberspace in the in Bulgaria, Montenegro, Estonia, the cases that I looked at that are closer to Russia, they use DDoS attacks. They actually attack core election infrastructure. But also in those cases in Montenegro, they try, they try to stage a coup, they tried to kill the prime minister. Do you see them trying to do that in the States? I mean, yes, January the 6th happened, but at this point there is no Russian relation or uh, significant influence on that particular um, failed coup. But in Montenegro, they actually sponsored uh, the jury officers, several jury officers went to Serbia and Montenegro and and basically financed the group to go and buy weapons and storm the parliament building and kill the prime minister. So there they even resorted to that. In Bulgaria, they tried to poison a weapons dealer twice and failed. And it's proven that they were GRU units because after the Skripal case, we realized some of the same guys using the same tactics were there. They most likely staged explosions in weapons factories in Bulgaria. One of the people that was killed during that explosion, I believe, was an American. So that's the level of like the, the aggression that they will reach, that the brazen behavior is, is definitely more unrestrained in Eastern Europe and countries closer, and so are the cyber operations in comparison to Western, um, to their behavior in the West. So it's a little bit like they they pull their kind of old traditional framework and vision on on cyber, so essentially limiting themselves in a way. Exactly. It's almost like back to the question, do they innovate? I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe on the periphery they innovate, but if you look at the structure like and apply to the Cold War 
behavior. It's kind of, it follows, it's almost like new wine and old bottles, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll come up with a better analogy, but something along the lines of, yeah, it's the, the same old, same old behavior. And now I don't think that what I was going to ask was too dark, but I won't anyway. Okay, so now I'm really <laughs> curious what. <laughs> okay. Oh, I just was just to thinking to myself. Uh, I wanted to ask you about on on the, on the terms of um, back to the topic of proximity and uh, information effect without all these covert operations, Novichok stuff, and uh, all these scary uh, things they do. Uh, what do you think about? Uh, propaganda versus uh, disinformation like in my maybe that's wrong but in my historical understanding of how the cold war was won uh, i believe that uh, the significant part of success was because of um, radio was still the most popular medium in the soviet union and uh, radio freedom radio for europe all these propaganda outlets that basically just shouted uh carefully constructed uh, true messages to the uh, Soviet and uh, Warsaw Pact countries' population, uh, it very much contributed to the overall success, right? Now we have cyber space as uh, the most popular medium for information transfer. So basically what they do, they just continue to do bad type of propaganda, disinformation in cyberspace, right? All over the world, because proximity doesn't matter anymore. Why don't we, first question, why don't the Western world, the civilized democratic world functioning as liberal democracies just tune up this message of truth and uh, just deliver it more diversely maybe right or, or are they doing so and i just do not do not follow right and the second one is uh, do we have to must we really fall back to their methods and maybe try something they do as uh, we observed lately i i didn't uh, dwell into the topic but uh, i i believe that some uh, first case of pro-Western propaganda operation was taking place uh, in, the, in the media. Is, is it true? Because I only just maybe skimmed through the Twitter and uh, it caught my attention. Well, let me like, start with all a great question. So let me, if, if I miss answering any of them, just let me know. So on the general thing about um, how they, they use radio before and whether we're doing the same, but we have our own media, right? And we continue to allow free speech, and that's the that's how we're doing it. We have, we still have those yeah, same yeah, media exactly. platforms. We're but, still but, spreading. But we, but we focus we on our channels. own audience. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're focused on the right on the wrong audience. I think we're also reaching the right audience, and we have so many centers for disinformation now and fact checking. Um, fact checking organizations that have spurred organically or a part of an institution. So I think we're mm -hmm. doing a great job. We're a little uncoordinated, but honestly, I don't think I don't know how to do this better at this point. I think <laughs> the lack of coordination is actually good. The fact that we have a mix of organically um, uh, grown organizations that are dealing with disinformation and there are some of them are related to a media agency, some of them are voluntary groups, and you have that as a mix with institutions like the European Union, the United States, like having their own departments that are looking at disinformation and, pu and publishing information about 
um, some of the, the most prevalent disinformation narratives and so on. I think the fact that we have a mix of this is good. I think that we should stay in that space and not coordinate it. I think that's the way to go because this is how you reach different audiences. Because, you know, hmm. some people are distrustful of the government. They don't want to hear the government telling them that this is a disinformation. Yeah, yeah. But they're going to go that, on that Reddit and fair. they're going to say, yeah, but then one of the influencers that we talked about earlier that you mentioned, it's a great point. Okay, I'm going to go to the influencer. Okay, he tells me that this is disinformation. Okay, I'll believe him because I like that source. And this is the mm -hmm. source that I listen to. So I think the mix is good. Um, what was your other question about um, disinformation? About whether we have to fall down to their level and maybe use some disinformation just, just in return. Well, the way you put it, fall down to their level, I would say no, right? <laughs> Who wants to fall down? <laughs> but there's something to be said about I honestly don't know where I stand on this at this point. And I think you may be referring to um, the recent disclosure that the U.S. government may have been conducting their own yeah, psyops yeah, exactly. through accounts that they didn't disclose were related to the or were associated with the U.S. government or the military. Um, there's something to be said about ceding an entire warfare domain to an adversary by just saying, okay, we're not, we're going to keep our moral ground and not mm -hmm. stoop to your level, not come to your level, and we're just going to continue to spread our narratives through legitimate channels, through through um, accounts that we clearly link to ourselves that are not fake and so on. I don't know. I think there are a lot of ethical considerations there. Like in cases where you have to track down a terrorist or an extremist group, I would say that probably it's justified to use whatever methods necessary to to achieve that mission about general disinformation narratives, I don't think we should probably be spreading disinformation, but I, I'm still thinking about whether my, what my position is on this. I think we need more study and we need to understand what are the different scenarios where this is allowed and this isn't, and we need to put it in doctrine and be very clear about what we are doing. That's, um, that's, that's really cool that you put it in these uh, uh, terms because once you pronounced that uh, we shouldn't, uh, concede the the whole entirety of of a domain of military operation. I thought that maybe uh, you could answer this question if I put uh, another argument in. So if it does not uh, surpass the threshold of military action, maybe the approach must be more moral. Yeah, keeping the moral higher ground. But if it does. If it's already a war, then all the means are okay. I don't know. What but is the that's again, that you're I, trying I'm, to I'm achieve? It's, it's just... so theoretical. Yeah, that could be, but uh, we. Oh, in Ukraine, it's not theoretical. A... Yeah, no, it's you're right, but it's just I, I meant to say it's still like there's a lot of abstraction, and there's so many so many different cases mm -hmm. um, to include in this. So yeah. I don't know. I Navo, for example, like you guys put that in, in, yeah. <laughs> in my mind. Like, this is awesome. I mean, I I don't think we should laugh this at war, so but cool. then I look at the memes and like I'm like, oh my god, it keeps it in my mind. I look at them, I follow them, like it is it is such an innovative way of of effectively drawing attention to a huge strategy that's happening in Europe right now. It's it's a way to attract the international community and especially people that are not in Ukraine and feel like this is alien and you you relate to them through humor. It's awesome. It's very innovative. It makes me feel very uncomfortable 
And I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, I don't really have a sense of humor, so I can't really join the troops, but I at least can support for reading. So in and, that respect, like, is this disinformation? If you're being sarcastic and humorous and like, what, where do you put that on the scale? Like, I still don't know how exactly what, I don't know how to define that. I think it will take us a while to figure out. It's a great but, way to but turn it's basically, around. Yeah, but it's like, it is a, a element of the way you're waging, you're fighting bad guys. This is... Mm-hmm. Through 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 your through, through your networks through humor that's actually now a, I I would say a tool of warfare but I I don't know exactly how to where to put it is it still within the information warfare domain yes but is it disinformation no maybe strategic right. messaging I keep on using that term because to me strategic messaging is um, strategic communication towards towards a particular targeted population and it could include disinformation but it doesn't have to just be disinformation. It could mm-hmm. be true information that you are just channeling to a, towards a particular audience because you want to achieve a particular objective. Right. Which but then also, if, if, back to that. if it's something that kind of organically appeared like NAFO without like any state like doing that, exactly. is, is it strategic messaging? Like how, how can it be strategic in that case? Right. Exactly. Well, because it's exactly, but you still have an element of organization, right? And you now have. Mm-hmm. You have the, the charter there as well, and people are relating to each other, and it's a network that has a certain element of coordination. So in that way, I would say it is strategic, and you know who your target is, and you know you know the goal and the objective. So in this way, because it's not chaotic, there is an objective, and the international community is behind it in a certain way, or the people that are involved, I would say in this way, it's strategic. That's why I would call it strategic. Got it. It's... Uh... I don't think we'll ever get a like clear line here because essentially like pluralism and having different opinions and then having someone injecting like intentionally uh, incorrect opinions like as part of propaganda like it's it's not easily solvable unless you have just one right opinion right and we know that that has some negatives to this as well um, yeah. so we'll just have to somehow but, but deal still, with it and still it's possible it's possible if you all think the same like me <laughs> right. Um, that's so scary. Basically we're this... <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's the perspective think. of each and every one of us. Because uh, un- unless we are formally educated to be pluralistic in our thinking, in talking to our to, to ourselves, right, in our mind uh, concerning uh, important topics, we all treat uh, everyone the same. If you only view the world the same way as a perfect human being that I am, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> to those of us who are still, to those who are still with us, right? I, I want to remind <laughs> that we are at this part of conversation where we're talking about like fighting disinformation and uh, how countries can can fight back. Um, but I think we could easily spend another hour uh, discussing just that. So I just wanted to, to ask, uh, uh, Bilana, maybe you want to talk about uh, your research uh, for this. Yeah, yeah, let uh yeah yeah of course of course okay so as far as we know right you had a multi-year project uh, uh, where you uh, basically try to use artificial intelligence to detect russian trolls so do you want to tell a little bit about that research and how do you see this can be used oh yeah so this was a while back i think we did this um we did this with a few of my colleagues back at rand and it was a really cool project um we wanted to figure out how do we apply AI machine learning tools of specifically analyzing content on to 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 um 
to detect trolls on Twitter and Reddit and different social platforms. And we used a particular uh, model of net natural language processing. Basically, you know, when, when a Russian speaks in English, they make certain mistakes and they're kind of common across different Russians, like uh, across Russians, like use longer sentences, you, um, um, you use certain words differently. You forget to use is because you don't really use it in Russian. <laughs> Everyone so... is smiling because the guys <laughs> are seeing <laughs> themselves, me yep. included, in what you say. Yep. But pretty much so maybe our model will catch you guys. So don't troll us because <laughs> we'll detect you. <laughs> so basically, yeah. we looked at those linguistic characteristics of Russians that pretend to be Americans because they make the same mistakes. And we build a model based on the mistakes that they make. And then we applied it to some Twitter data and some Reddit data. And we got almost perfect um, perfect scoring, almost perfectly managed to detect who is a fake American, basically a Russian troll tweeting, and who is actually an American-American tweeting. So who based is a on cheap, those... Who is a cheap fake American who didn't spend 50 bucks a year for Grammarly? <laughs> <laughs> Because this stuff does <laughs> just, just about that. Right. <laughs> well, but then also, also there is also there is another trade for you. So I I used to work at a fintech company, and of course there were some fraud cases, and uh, we were looking at a transcript of of a chat of uh, uh, someone with our support agent who essentially turned out to be a agent that tried to kind of do social engineering and, and whatnot. And in just among all the messages um, in one place, there was like unclear combination of English letters uh, or uh, sorry, not, not non-English letters. Right. And um, I realized that again, to American, it might not make sense, but to me, it clearly was uh, uh, seen that the, the person was trying to answer yes, but they had Kyrillic layout on. So yeah, <laughs> so smart. Look at that. They yeah. kind of expose That's themselves awesome. with that. So these NLP models, they basically catch a troll uh, based on some some corpus of data, right? So so how much That's text right. do you need to observe? Is Twitter enough? Oh, that was a great question. We use the we use the training so the test and train. We trained our module using the data from 2016, and we managed to adjust that for later. And how many we, we scaled it down oh, i have to open the paper it was we literally wrote one blog post it was 800 words and i can't tell you that I'm, but there was a response most likely from a nation state as a result of the fact that we wrote a 800 word blog on on a website so we it was something that they basically paid attention to is what i'm trying to tell you guys yeah, um that's cool. but uh, yeah we scaled it down i think we got to like Six thousand entries you needed to have, or something like this. I can check. Don't quote me. It's it's literally on the in the paper. It's like a blog post that we still have. It was okay. like okay. So that's that's uh, not catching like catching trolls um, on Twitter or something like that. But uh, we did check that. Fantastic amounts of data. That's that's quite natural. Exactly. You can observe it online. If you, if a person is active, you just can observe it, and that's it. Exactly. But Vlad, nice. the, the the bad thing about this is, thank you. So it worked, but we know that the Russians are using also troll farms abroad now. So. Unfortunately, you, no, not... you may catch some of the trolls that are basically Russians pretending to be Americans, but if they're Macedonians pretending to be Americans or someone from an African country, then you have to create a different model because their mistakes based on their native language will be different. Considering the Russian the ruble exchange rate, that's, that's outsourcing that stuff may, may become irrelevant very soon. <laughs> Just okay. on, not on the agenda. Yeah, that's, that's, about, yeah, that's a possibility. About the culture of 
troll farms uh, given what uh, you have on your plate right now did you have a chance to see undeclared war undeclared it's war a series. what do you mean oh i haven't it's it's, it's a tv series uh, produced in the uk i guess because of the accents and the simon peck starring so Should it's about it? gchq versus fsb cyber war and uh, information warfare so i have very good uh, feedback from people close to the culture on the the one side of it right and uh, you are the perfect person to ask your opinion what you think about what the internal culture of uh, fsb trolling farms could be and is it depicted uh, in a cultural product more or less uh close to reality yeah well i have to watch it first right i i'll put it on my list yeah, usually yeah. the shows that i watch are russian shows i can recommend you a few like um it rota i don't know if you've seen it it's about how the russians are recruiting um their hacker teams and it's pretty good it was uh basically approved by the ministry of defense and a few others so that's that's how I spend my evenings watching Russian propaganda shows. <laughs> so, but but they're good. They're good. No, that's the, how I get my depictions of popular culture and hackers the, in popular culture. The, this one I, I I generally recommend because I even I like watched it on um, putting it on pause regularly just to see whether what they uh, show on screens is is more or less uh, like realistic. And it is. It's like you know, Mister Robert, first season of Mister Robert to pen testing. This stuff could be to information warfare. That's awesome. Just to explain so, uh, your non-technical friend what it is, you, you just give them a season of a series and they are in, like conceptually. Absolutely. I would love to see it. I'll have a look. Uh, with regards to the troll farms and what's, what, what they're like inside, like we had some information from the 2016 investigations and indictments, right? And then afterwards the reports, like that they were literally paid like from, from nine to five, like... The trolls had a, they, they almost were like not normal staff members of a company, like employees. They, they have a nine to five job and they were paid by the number of, uh, of tweets or, or engagements that they had. And they were given, they were given the types of narratives that they had to proliferate on social media. So it's almost like your job is to troll. Your job is to be a, whatever they call it, like a PR agent or whatever the, the nice term they want to put around it. But it was it was like a regular day job. That's how that's how it was described, at least that's the impression that I got from the reading that I did. I haven't gone into one. I would I would love to break into one of those. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing it firsthand, but I haven't. That's the knowledge that I have. I was just but, thinking what what a terrible uh, kind of professional cost uh, to have to watch Russian propaganda in the evenings. But. Yeah, that's... that's, yeah, that's... <laughs> It's hilarious to me. A lot of liability. Uh, you, I, just for your information, I already got my answer. It's very close to what they depict, but you still go see see the movie, see, see the okay. series. Awesome. I, I'm sure you will enjoy it. All right. All right. Uh, basically, I feel like we could go on for another hour for sure. And we just want to be mindful uh, of your time. Um, so in the end, we typically ask if if you have anything for Ukrainian audience or if, if you want to cover any other topic uh, for sure as well. I mean, talking to you guys is great and I can also go for other hours, but I also have a day job to do, unfortunately. <laughs> so I will have to go. Um, I feel completely unqualified to, to tell Ukrainians anything at the moment. This is 
an active war that you're in, guys, and I can't imagine what this is like. And everyone I have met so far from Ukraine, Viktor Zora, I want to just applaud, applaud him and the people that are representing you outside of your country because they are doing a fantastic job of maintaining, like being sane and accurately telling us, telling us about what's happening on the ground. And I, uh, like, I'm just absolutely in awe of you. The fact that you're so like, your fears, defiance in, in the middle of what's happening is just awe inspiring to me. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. We also want to thank you, everyone who tremendously supports Ukraine abroad with their work, with their, um, with everything that they do, because uh, again, we couldn't uh, couldn't uh, have done anything like that uh, without the support, realistically. Uh, so thanks everyone a lot. Uh, at this time, we also want to remind everyone who's listening that we do encourage uh, everyone to support Ukraine with any way possible, uh, whether it's uh, you know working with your representatives locally or donating to uh, our trusted fund, uh, Come Back Alive, a fund for uh, competent. Uh, competence help to Ukrainian army because they know best, uh, you know, what are the largest gaps that need to be covered. So that's why that's why we trust them and, and prefer to to work with them. Um, and uh, yeah, if if anything just reached to your nearest Ukrainian, I'm sure they will tell you a lot more uh, about a lot more ways to help. And thank you, Bidana, for all your work and also for joining us today. And uh, you know, let's uh, let's wait for the for the victory. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you, guys. This was great. Thank you very much.